Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio, recorded at River Road Studios in Eugene, Oregon. Today's show is brought to you by the ever-popular, always-famous Herbal Nerd Society. The Herbal Nerd Society. Yeah. It's so great to have something that can support the work that we do. And, you know, I, I love getting feedback from people that are in that. And I love being able to share more information. And we herbal world this is just changing so fast, too. It seems like it's a race to try to keep up. It sure is. Yeah. It sure is. Happily, the Herbal Nerd Society is so cool. They don't need to worry about keeping up. Mm, no, we help them with that. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very so much you. for supporting our podcasts and the books that we write and the the website that we have. And um, Herbal Nerd Society is how that happens. Yes. Yes. Yep. So thank you. Thank you very much. And remember, if you want to join the Herbal Nurse Society, it's easy to do. Thepracticalherbalist.com and go to the top tab. It says join the Herbal Nurse Society. So if you're looking to you know, support uh, herbalism and herbs and getting information out to everybody, including yourself, mm-hmm. then joining the Herbal Nurse Society is a really great way to do that. We, we appreciate your support. And please remember, we really benefit from the reviews that you write, um, not only for the books, but also for um, our podcast that helps people so that they can learn more about herbs. It's so important. I personally think for people to have a diversity of healing tactics and modalities to access, it makes the world a better place. Indeed. All right. On with the show. The beauty of herbal study is in the way it cross-pollinates our lives, leading us in new directions and helping us heal. Sometimes the healing reaches beyond humans and plants into the animal, or in this case, insect kingdom. Today we're talking with Don Combs, author of Sweet Remedies, Healing Herbal Honeys, and other titles, herbal educator and beekeeper about bees, herbs, and finding your way home. Now, here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Radio. Welcome, Don. We are so thrilled to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me. We have been looking for, it's been like two, two and a half years, At least. Sue, for a beekeeper who understands herbs and is sustainable. Mm-hmm. It has been surprisingly challenging to find. Yep. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm, I'm glad I can fill a niche. Oh, I, I've been here toiling away. <laughs> <laughs> You've been perfecting your craft just for yeah. this show, right? Uh, my husband and I have been, we called what we've been doing the, every time we presented it to a different beekeeper club or a, a different conference, I've always announced it as our grand experiment because uh, when you come up with a new way of keeping bees, and I would argue that our way is not necessarily new, but a different way, I guess, um, it's just an experiment and yeah. you kind of see you learn from the bees whether you're doing it right or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love your approach to it. I love that. Thank uh, you. It's very engaged with Mother Nature. I mean, it's the way we should be practicing all facets of herbalism. So can you share with our audience what your way is? And then could you tell us a little bit about how you got to to that spot? Sure. Uh, well, we call it uh, bee-led beekeeping um, or, or we, we call it bees first. Uh, and really at the bottom of it is that the bee herself and, and the bee colony is first. No matter what we're trying to do, their health is first. And um, it's 
kind of evolved over the years. We started out just like every other beekeeper, and we learned from our local beekeepers here that uh, the conventional way. And uh, the day that I saw my husband standing over a hive and we were treating, uh, quote unquote, naturally, we were using formic acid pads and he had on nitrile gloves and a, a specialty rated respirator and he was covered from head to foot and I was standing 60 feet away mm-hmm. and I thought, this mm. is, this is our, this is the best we can do. This is, this and they're assuring me that there's not going to be any effect on this tiny creature that has to live in the hive. And, um, that kind of did it for me. Mm -hmm. I stepped away from kind of listening to what the humans were saying. And I tuned in instead to what, what the bees were saying. And I spent a lot of time sitting out in the grass listening and watching and observing. And I went from a beekeeper to a bee observer. And I felt like it was a much more appropriate role. The more I researched about the bee and uh, looked into entomology and studied what we know about the bee and watched the behavior, uh, listening to the history too. And the fossil record shows that the bee is so much older than us. The bee evolved, the honey bee evolved with uh, the the very herbs, plants, trees that we use for health and medicine now. So she knows kind of what she's doing. And I suddenly realized that all of the beekeeping methods that we're doing right now that I'm learning from other humans comes from a place of this hubris of mm-hmm. I'm a human and I can know what this creature needs and I can rearrange her world as I see fit because I'm going to make it better. Uh, We don't make it better. We get in the way. So uh, we kind of started figuring out how to get out of their way. That's, I love the fact that you're using the word hubris because I think that's so apt for where we as a culture are in relation to nature. We're almost like, you know, late teens, early 20s, where we still quite haven't gotten our feet and we still think we're all that in a bag of chips. I think that's a really great way to put it. That late teen, I think our culture is sort of in that place. I see it all over the place. We're fighting for our own identity and we're rebelling and mm-hmm. um, and we know everything. Yes. We yeah. know everything. And um, really how I began to create what we did on our farm was to just step out and admit that I don't know anything about being a bee. I don't, I'm profoundly incapable. And I started to watch and pay attention. And at the same time, I was developing all of these uh, preparations that were honey based and using them to heal and balance bodies. And I thought, wow, if the bee isn't healthy, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff with grass-fed meat and well-raised mm-hmm. vegetables. And if I care so much about how those things are being raised, but I don't care about the well-being and the health of the bee that's making the substance that I'm working in, um, I'm, not making, I'm not making a healthy product if it's on the back of a worker that's sick. That's so true. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I I love that. But when you started out, you didn't start out 
with the intention to be a beekeeper, right? I mean, when you were six years no. old, were you like, I'm going to keep bees? Not no. really. No, <laughs> well, it was part of the plan. I nice. left my corporate job and I I was going to raise, I was almost 30 and I had told my husband that I, I needed to get on that whole project of having kids. And <laughs> so I retired and uh, within three months, I was told by my doctor that I was infertile. Oh. And this was at the same time as I my plan was to retire into raising bees and making natural products. And I was studying with Rosemary Gladstar at the time. And so I was taking my, my degree in botany and I was fleshing it out with the folklore background and the, the historical writings about using herbs for health. And I was going to use all of that to have my own thing at home while I raised my kids. Cause I can't imagine not yeah. having my own thing. Right. Uh, about the same time as we were installing our first packages, though, I was told that that dream was not going to come to fruition. And so the bees became, they, they were something that I was learning and I was spending time with uh, while I was studying the herbs. And so really where we are today with the products that I make and the fact that I've been on the market this whole time with honey and herb products, um, it's all been a journey to create my family, to take care of my family, to take care of my community. And the bees and the herbs have always been vitally intertwined. Mm -hmm. Nice. Did you were you raised in a family that was, you know, organic and natural and all of that with alternative access to alternative medicines and those sorts of things? Or were you raised in a more conventional family? Something in between. Okay. Um, my my parents gardened. Uh, my mother made all of our meals from scratch. We composted. Uh, but we weren't, we didn't use herbs necessarily for healing. We used common sense. So a lot of things that I wrote in my book, Heal Local, is is what my mom did at home, understanding what you can do on your own, knowing your scope of practice, yeah, if you will, um, knowing what you can accomplish at home and what you need uh, a somebody more skilled than you to take care of. We've lost all of those skills. Yeah. And I was raised that way. We didn't run to the doctor for everything, but we went when it was necessary. And my mother cooked, but she didn't make herbal medicines. I think probably the closest she came was ginger tea, which <laughs> I find to be very important herbal medicine, but we didn't really look at it that way. Yeah. I suppose that colors who I am and how I speak uh, in this realm, because it was always just common sense how you care for yourself, how you care for your family to begin with. Yeah. So you coming home and saying, mom, I'm an herbalist now and I'm, I'm making, you know, herbal medicines with, you know, keeping bees and all of that. She wasn't like, oh my God, what have you done? She no, was actually my quite parents were definitely mystified why I chose botany in college because I, I rebelled against gardening chores. But <laughs> um, once they saw that uh, this was where I wanted to be. I mean, I took this weird detour into corporate America and my husband claims that this is false advertisement because he met me and I was a professional girl and I lived in the city and 
as soon as he married me, I was like, okay, now we can move out to the house in the country. I want a hundred acres and I want to start growing everything. And his head, I think may still be spinning a little bit, (laughs) but yeah, it didn't really surprise my parents. It did surprise my life partner who had no intention of raising bees, uh, but got them anyway. What a good sport. But he fell in love, didn't he? He, he, he did. I think bees are, it's impossible not to become infatuated if you truly spend time with them. We always say they're like potato chips. No one can have just one hive. You <laughs> have to, it becomes an addictive hobby and just sitting out amongst them, watching them come and go, and you can lose whole hours of your day. I always invite visitors to the farm to put their ear to the hive, to listen, that sound, that that contented sound inside to me sounds like it's just, it's just love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they're they're magical, amazing creatures. And I, I know why I started to become interested in them. And that was because of my, my pollinator fascination from the botany world. But um, I do understand how I just fell hook, line and sinker. <laughs> that sounds absolutely magical. So you started um, studying other insects that pollinate as well? I wish I had time to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to study as much. Uh, I study by observation and uh, would say our big concern on the farm when we brought so many honey beehives on was that it would outcompete the native pollinators. Mm-hmm. I know enough about the native pollinators to understand that they are even more threatened mm-hmm. and uh, we need to create habitat for them as well as the honeybee. It's The honeybee is a nice canary in the coal mine, mm-hmm. but they are by no means the only thing for us to focus on. And uh, so we have kind of done an informal study over the years watching for the number and type and amount of pollinator. And we have found that as we create more and more habitat for our honeybees, we have seen ginormous increases in the native pollinators as well. And mm-hmm. I, I would love to hear if you share about some of the things you've done to increase habitat. And for our listeners that might not know as well, it's not just insects that are pollinators, of course, birds, um, there are mammals that do it as well. The, the, bat there's a some kind of like monkey creature or something that does pollination in South America and it the the list goes on if you've got a a critter that's willing to stick its little tongue into a flower then you've got yourself a pollinator <laughs> but could you talk about or, where you are or to brush by or to yeah. brush by correct uh-huh. or to be the wind uh-huh. that yeah plants are plants are incredibly intelligent in the ways that they manipulate all of the beings around them to get the jobs done that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, we have increased, um, I'm just going to say at the base of it, we work with weeds. Yeah. That's really, that's the foundational thing that you can do to help any pollinator whatsoever is the weeds. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Um, it has made us probably, well, I'm not going to say farmers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It has made us unpopular in our neighborhood because our farm is situated in a lot of big open lots. 
but the folks that typically live out here are still suburban in their focus. And so they mow them and (laughs) they go back inside. And here we are with our big old patch of weeds. And I don't, we're in Scott's lawn country. So the lawn is supposed to be pristine and that's how you're a good neighbor. And I feel really Mm -hmm. bad about that because the perception is cultural. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a, it's not a, an intentional judgment call on what we've done, but it's a cultural judgment call that it, it looks like we don't care about our our farm or our community that we have weeds, Mm -hmm. but the weeds are critical. They feed all the pollinators. They provide habitat for the pollinators. They provide overwintering so that uh, these, the pollinators that have a cycle that take them overwinter so they can reemerge. If everything's clean, they don't have that available. Yeah. Um, They have to have hidey spots. I've learned so much about, insects watching them on the weeds i learned that if you're looking for your ladybugs you need to look in your thistles and i've never been able to look this up whether they're foraging there but my sense is that they're hiding there among the thorns it's a protection and so we always leave thistles in our garden because the ladybugs hide in the thistles and we want the ladybugs in the garden People pay big money to put the ladybugs in their garden. Right. And meanwhile, if they just let the Canadian thistle grow. Then there you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. That you, it's it's the weeds. It's yeah. the weeds and, and varying layers of habitat. Yeah. In our yard, in my yard at least, we have um, uh, artichokes, which are thistle family. And in the artichokes, there are always aphids because the ants tend to farm aphids in the artichokes. And so the ladybugs are going to the artichokes. I'll find lots of ladybugs near the artichokes. In the flower. In the flower mm-hmm. and all around. Yeah. And I think yeah. they're, I think it's a combination of, you know, shelter, but also in at least that case, it's food too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it turns into yeah. this big ecosystem because the things like wasps, they smell. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, what are they? The, um, the other stinging buggers. Hornets, They're like hornets, and yeah, and th- all of the the guys that are pesky to us, but they they're always sniffing the air, trying to figure mm-hmm. out where the honeydew is that the aphids make. So I have a question. Then I was talking mm-hmm. with with my friend at um, Rebecca at Palmer Pond Botanicals, and we were talking about how many beehives. How close can you have bees? Will they get into fights with each other? You know, will they have wars with the wasps? I mean, how do you how do you know? how close you can have your hives and how will they disrupt? How do they disrupt all the other pollinators? The wasps. We have at one point on three and a half acres, we had upwards of 35 hives, wow. which should be way too many. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't have fights. We didn't have problems and our bees were very healthy. Now I wouldn't do that intentionally. That was that was a. There were a couple of years where things were just booming in our bee yards, and we mm-hmm. kept getting swarms, and we didn't have a place to to lo- <laughs> relocate some of the hives. But even at that over um, the overburden on a piece of property, we were still we were still healthy. Uh, I think you have to look at it more from an ecosystem level. 
the hives, if they're being cared for in a way that focuses on their health, first and foremost, proper siting, so that they're getting good access to water and they're not too shaded and they're not too hot and they've got their own honey to eat, all of the things that I list in my book for the ways that we've been doing this, um, they can they can maintain a lot. Now, if your bees are stressed, it's kind of like people. If people are stressed and they start to feel desperate, they're going to do things that are abnormal. They're going to try and rob another hive. They're going to pick fights. They're going to have road rage. And so you folk, if you notice that you've got that kind of stress going on as a beekeeper under the bees first mentality, you have to step back and see what am I not contributing or what can I contribute to bring down the hysteria in this situation? And sometimes that means there's too many bees here. Um, There's too little forage for this number of bees. And that's a lot the problem that we see Uh, farmers are going all the way to the edges of their fields. We don't have fence rows. Um, We're right off a a park. So we have some extra forage up our sleeve that maybe other people might not. But in some cases, two hives is too little on a huge piece of property because there aren't any weeds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're, if, if you're, fortunate enough to have a decent sized piece of property, like maybe five or 10 acres or something like that, that you're able to do um, herbal gardening and farming and that sort of thing on, you could potentially have a hive that won't interfere with like your neighbor's hive, especially if you're taking good care of it and you're, you're intentionally planting well for it. Yeah. With diversity. Yeah. You have to plant for it. So you can't just take up, you you can't say, I'm going to have a hive 10 feet from my neighbor's hive and we're just going to have grass because (laughs) they're going to fight. Yeah. Um, And actually, I mentioned this in, in the book, but in Roman times, there were laws against how close you could put beehives. And we do have problems right now where everybody and their brother is becoming a beekeeper. And so the amount of beehives in a square mile per se has increased greatly. And that's not just one property. It's that everybody has them. Right. If you're going to do that, I mean, that's great. But you can't go out and tell everybody to become a beekeeper and then not also have the conversation of, but you also have to provide the forage and you mm-hmm. have to provide the water source. Uh, they're going to go to your neighbor's pool if you don't have something in mind for wh- where they're going to get water. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know for sure that there's plenty of forage and you aren't planting it, then it's not a good idea for you to be a beekeeper in that spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even if you're not a beekeeper, you can definitely dip into honey and herbs. As, yeah. like as an herbalist yeah. or just Absolutely. plant things in your yard for bees that live in in your neighborhood whether they're your bees or not we have yeah. a hive that is in a tree that's just on the outskirts of our property and they're honeybees and you know we don't go raid the for the honey that's their honey but they are in our yard all the time with the variety of herbs then the the sage and the rosemary and the just everything that blooms with our crazy little chunk of property, they're all over it. And that's... Well, and the, go ahead. 
the more herbs you plant, the more medicine you're providing. The the bee is she knows the value of all of those pollens and nectars mm-hmm. way more than we do. And rosemary and mint are some of the best defenses. Well, let's see, thyme and oregano and all of those are great for them to take back into the hive to protect against illness. Mm-hmm. And we don't think about that because we see honey as one dimensional. So planting herbs is, is I talk about weeds a lot, but the herbs themselves are really important as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, what other kind of things that should people know if they're interested in, in getting into bees? It sounds like talking to their neighbors, becoming, you know, learning from what bees have taught us is that a community is very important. So yeah. stop pretending that you are an island in and of yourself, but talk to your neighbors and find out what they got going and and yeah. tell us more about no, that and how you did. Know what's planted, know, know what's available in the area, know how many bees are already in the area. Mm-hmm. And can does it seem like you can withstand more? Um, getting involved in, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many things to think about. You know, do you, what's, what kind of hive do you do? And are you going to get involved with the hive every single day? more like the conventional side, or are you going to do something more like what we've done where we let the bees be bees as much as possible? How much time do you have? Um, You can't, one thing that the conventional beekeepers will pick apart of what I do is to suggest that it's doing nothing. And it's kind of the same conversation that people have standing outside of herbal health oh, well, you're not going to the doctor, so you're not doing anything. Well, you should never leave your daughter on the sofa with scarlet fever and just ignore that. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a difference between ignoring it and just hoping that it'll all go away because you're a natural person um, and doing things to support the body's fight against that disease organism at home. Um, so it's the same thing with what we're doing with the beekeeping um, we're not doing nothing. We are monitoring the situation. We are supporting as often, but we're not, we're not in there going to the doctor all the time. We're mm-hmm. not, we're not taking the hive apart and, uh, trying to be the boss. Hopefully that metaphor is making sense. Stop me if it isn't. Um, well, you talked about how the bees go and get um, plants, they pollinate in plants from the garden and those plants have medicine. So again, learning from the bees and we need a diversity of medicine and a diversity of tactics just as they do. So that, yeah. that's, that's natural healing and, and smart creatures on this planet use the tools that they can use um, depending on what their need is. So that's what and bees what do. One of the big critiques from conventional beekeeping is that to be a good beekeeper, you need to be into your hives almost weekly, if not more. You need to be in there cleaning up what they're doing. You need to clean out the beeswax they've created in the quote unquote wrong places. You need to be switching the boxes. You've got to manage them because they don't know what they're doing and you've got to help them. And if you aren't doing that, you're not you're just be having. Mm-hmm. And there's a big criticism in the bee world that that's why we have disease. It's all these people that aren't taking care of 
there are bees every day. And so there's, uh, uh, I've heard it from a couple people. I'm sure there are more if they get a hold of my book. They'll think that what I'm arguing for is that you should just put a beehive on your property and then just let them do their natural thing and never, In never an artificial get condition. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's not what I'm suggesting. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that the bees are perfectly capable of handling things inside the hive. And it's really not my place to interfere, yeah. but I need to be observant and aware constantly. I'm listening to the sound of the bees when I step off the front porch in the morning. Are they agitated? Is there something going on? Are they under stress? Are are we in a drought? Do I need to take honey out there? Do I have good water source? Has the water source gotten stagnant? That's constant beekeeping, yeah. but it doesn't look like the conventional beekeeping. So that's where my metaphor of, you know, you are, you're not going to the doctor. So it looks like you're not doing anything when really you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a lot like the difference between sending your kids to the Waldorf me- method for schooling and going to conventional school or unparenting. Unparenting yeah. doesn't raise kids who are well-adjusted and intelligent and capable of exploring and using resources and all that. Waldorf parenting does. Public school is debatable Strange. sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> but not, you know, some public schools do a great job for certain yeah. people. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to be knocking public school, but unparenting, I will knock. Mm-hmm. I will say that's not a good way to go. <laughs> So all the a lot of people just started started dear real herbalism. Yeah, we'll, we'll cut that off. <laughs> That's Not all right. All Sue's used to fielding all of those emails that we get from people who are displeased with whatever we have said. Yeah, Sue will take that. It's, it's okay to have. It's okay to disagree with the things that we say, um, and it's okay to bring up other points. But um, just like when you talk to other folks in the community. Please remember that we we have our own opinions based on our information, and it's a constant conversation, and we will change our opinions based on new information. And if we don't change our opinions to your liking, my goodness, that conversation will just keep going, and, and you might change yours as well. Well, and I, and I might consider, you know, suggesting to them maybe some, like, little bee calm honey spread to help soothe yeah, that, right. or happy yeah. honey spread to help soothe that hurt. Have, have you've made some of those, haven't you, Candace? You looked through and well, I I looked through and I will admit I had the best of intentions and I was so excited because I've got I've got trifolia powder mm-hmm. or trifolia powder and I was I was excited because you've got a really cool recipe in here for in in sweet remedies for um, warming and cooling trifolia spread and I was like, all right, that'll be perfect. You know, we'll I'll do that. It'll be fun. And I put it off until last night and went to my cabinet and realized I don't have trifala because I have used it up and I was it was not in stock where I get it. So I was waiting for it to be back in stock. Oh, right. So I looked at what I do have. So this is a, a plant that I think is going to be on our list of uh Herb Nerd Society plants that we for trifolia? feature. Yeah, yeah, that's actually it's a blend of three. It's an Ayurvedic mm-hmm. blend. But We've so I was I was gonna cider, so. I was gonna do that, and then I didn't because again didn't have everything. But I did remember reading in your book that honey spreads work well with mushrooms, and it kind of yes. covers up the mushroomy flavor. 
Mm-hmm. So I ended up making one with some chaga, some cordyceps. I added a little ashwagandha to give it a little bit of kick and some cinnamon. Mm. So that you can, delicious. you took her yeah. recipe from the, the book. Yeah. I modified, I used her, her, I used your, your, um, method, which awesome. Love it. Super mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. So you hear the sound in the background of, the jar opening and the clink of the silverware. Yeah. We've got a, there's a little taste test going on. This almost looks like um, Nutella, Candace. I know it doesn't taste really, really nice. You can definitely smell that honey. I have a recipe for sort of a Nutella in there. Yes. That's another one that I want to try. I really want to try that one. You're Mm -hmm. doing a takeoff on the Aztec Musha latte. And yes, we actually do that one in our store in Marysville, Ohio. So our mm. customers come in and get an Aztec Musha latte, hot or cold, mm. and um, and then we dirty it up with espresso sometimes. Ooh. And it's a it's a big favorite. I can see how people would really like that. Yeah, that was really good. That's mm-hmm. medicine. I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! That's yeah. the point. Yay. Yeah. I don't believe in forcing anybody to take herbal medicine. I think herbal health is supposed to be something we use in joy, mm-hmm. and it's something that we're a part of that therapy. We are choosing to rebalance our body. We are choosing the work that is involved in that. And if you're forcing something into your mouth because it's terrible, uh, it's I just it's not going to do the same thing for you. And you're not going to have the compliance that you could have with something that you enjoy. Yes. And compliance, I hate that word, too. You're talking about forcing your your child, which is where mine all started, um, was working with my kids with these luxuries. But it's yourself. If you can't talk yourself into doing something every day when it's talking, when you're talking about herbs and balancing, you're not going to have success because you have to stick with it. Exactly. And I mean, I know even myself, there have been some pretty lovely flavored teas and things that I've put together (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they have been great medicine for a short term, but it's hard to stick with it for months on end if it doesn't taste good. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, in, I, I work in, in medicine, so compliance is what we, we use to describe. When you give somebody uh, medicine, you've had a conversation with them and, and the, the provider gives them a prescription or talks about uh, exercise regime or whatever, and the compliance rate for a patient is your thought on what they, their excitement of the time, yes, I really want this, I'm tired of the pain that I'm having, what are the odds that this person will will really go for the recommendations that you have carefully worked with them to craft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, I work in my integrated volunteer, my integrated clinic, the um, because of the um, poverty that we um, work with, with our patients, because it's a lot of unhoused people, the compliance rate also has to do with the conditions that they're living under. I'm not going to say makes to someone who's unhoused, make tea every day. Well, that <laughs> yeah, would be yeah. foolish. <laughs> yeah. Just put it on your portable oven, you know, get your portable porcelain pot. That's just not, <laughs> not, not really a thing to, to, to have. But with this that you have crafted here with a variety of recipes that you have there, I've been able to add that to our clinic um, uh, pharmacy, pharmacopoeia 
and herbal offerings to people that they can just take a little thing of of these electuaries with them for a week and you know they're going to be taking it because it's it's delightful tasting and they can take a little bit a day and come back next week and get a little bit more and they're feeling like for especially for people that are um poor that they have something in their life that gives them some joy that's actually good for them. So that lovely feeling of eating the honey and then mm-hmm. having the herbs in their bodies that they most desperately need. It's just a, something to say, you're, you are a human being that deserves a, a little treasure of sunshine that's on the top of this spoon. So enjoy that's yourself or, or just right from a little that. squirty bottle, whatever. So that's the compliance that we're looking for. I know that word has been overly used and used to oppress, but good Lord, in the, in the world that we live in, what word has not been used to oppress? <laughs> yeah, so let's recapture sure. that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think in that situation, you can probably put a luxuries inside kind of a, uh, kind of a toothpaste tube. Oh, yeah. I think they sell those at um, Uline or not Uline, SKS. Yeah. You can probably do it in a squeeze tube like that and make it something that's really unobtrusive to carry right yeah that's a good idea we use these little things that you know when you go to a uh oh i don't know like a travel store or to a motel and they have a little pop top that's got a um you put shampoo or something in it we get those the smaller ones a one ounce bottles of those and fill those those are very very popular wow that's awesome. So thank you for helping yes. the people in our community. Yes. <laughs> well, you speak about the medical, um, the medical community. That's one thing that I really started to explore with this book. It was the, the potential there. I, I was really excited with the research that I found about these electuaries because, of course, I didn't invent the electuary. I'm just the person that's been doing it mm-hmm. right. uh, on the market. Um, but I really wanted to point to the history around the world of cultures that were, that were doing this for a long time. And that's why there are the different colors, there are different colored sections throughout the book that, that show those recipes that I got from people from a few different representative cultures. Um, but I always believe in looking behind us and into those, uh, cultures that haven't lost their way. And, uh, and and also look ahead of us into clinical research. And what I found that the medical field is looking at honey and herbs together, it, it proves what traditional societies believed in that mixing honey and herbs. It's not just about the fact that it's delightful and mm-hmm. that it tastes good. It's really about it being a synergy and amplifying the effect of the herb. Uh, I talk a lot in the book about it being a, for my conservationist heart, I can use a lot less herb in these formulas than I would use for a tincture or a tea or any other formula, Mm -hmm. but it's amplifying it and the ramifications that that can have uh, some of the studies suggesting that potentially we could even embed some of the harsh medications that we have on the market in honey. Mm-hmm. The idea that it could potentially ameliorate side effects. Uh, it could mean we 
might be able to lower doses. Mm-hmm. I think there's some some real exciting things here. If we were to look, if we were to have all the money in the world, <laughs> and we were to do more research, um, the the electuary is much more complex than just being sweet and delicious. Right. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a absorbability just. Mm-hmm. Um, the foods that we eat, there's a wide range of absorbability, you know, everything from 10% of the nutrition that you get from um, raw foods to uh, 90% of something that's been heated or steamed or something like that so that your body can process it more. Or an, And depending on the digestive system or conditions of the person who's eating it, um, the the place that they live in, you know, is it really hot? Is it cold? Uh, do they have a lot of stress in their life? All of this always affects um, absorbability of the the nutrients and components in, in the herbs and the foods that we eat. And adding something like this with the honey, that that heightens that even more. So I'm looking forward to more research, giving us an idea of what's, what will help us be better herbalists and help the people that are ill in our life. So we get get an idea of the variety of different kind of herbs that we have and how combining them, maybe a little bit less honey, maybe a little bit more, you know, the sky's the limit. Well, the thing, uh-huh. I, the thing I found really interesting that you mentioned research-wise was that there was a piece in, that's been done on the question of heating honey versus not heating honey. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's, that's one of those things that I've heard that batted around, but mostly people haven't talked about heating honey as being a bad thing, right? Well, in growing up as a baby uh, beekeeper, uh, we were kind of, it's it's common knowledge that if you heat honey, you lose the active enzymes in there, the, the living component of it. So you want to keep it raw. But uh, as I began to, so I did the electuary kind of instinctively because I was raising herbs and honey and it, it just kind of happened in my family because I needed it. But uh, when I started to look at what I was doing and the background of it, I found in the Ayurvedic history that they don't heat honey and they actually have a temperature at which it becomes what's called ama and ama the best way for me to describe that is it's it's this really when your body is producing very sticky mucus to protect itself that gets stuck on the inside of the digestive tract. Mm-hmm. And in Ayurveda, that the sort of ama that's created by eating heated honey, they believe to be pretty much the most difficult ama to clear out of the body. Mm-hmm. And so that was fascinating in light of hearing all of this about, you know, you want to buy raw honey. And I started to wonder, well, what's the science behind it? What's, you know, if that's what is being passed in traditional Chinese medicine and in Ayurveda, that we don't heat honey, why? Why do we have anything? And what I discovered, which was a substance called HMF. And I'm not going to embarrass myself by pronouncing the actual (laughs) chemical because I've done it a few times on stages and felt just, I'm inadequate to that. (laughs) It's in the book. You can read it. Um, HMF increases as we heat honey and there are no known, um, the World Health Organization has not determined what the levels are that would be safe for us to incur or to ingest. 
However, um, we are definitely seeing that in pretty small amounts, HMF is a cancer-causing agent. And so the more we heat honey, it's it's an action. HMF is produced as we heat fructose. And so it's not just honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other other issues here. But as we heat honey, we absolutely do lose those precious enzymes. But we're also increasing some dangerous components. Mm-hmm. And when you and say so, heat honey, you're talking, of course, people from from hot countries, like my honey is always warm. You know, mm-hmm. I live in India, so it's, yep. so the temperature range, can you give us an idea about that? Well, the first question I always get is, oh my gosh, does this mean I can't put it in my hot tea? No, <laughs> you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you're putting it into something that is comfortable enough for, to go into your mouth without scalding, that's a really good rule of thumb. And if you think about the logic inside a hive, you're looking at a hundred degrees or so inside a hive on a hot day and in some countries anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're, you, you've got to stray above, I believe it's 117 is the Ayurvedic number. Um, you've got to, you've got to be starting to cook it to, to get the, it amplifies the HMF is there as it's a little warmer, but as it begins to go over a certain heat threshold, and I have a, a graphic in the book that shows different, each increment of degree that is added, it compounds mm-hmm. the level of HMF that's in the honey. And so, of course, um, this is going to happen with high fructose corn syrup as well. And many beekeepers in the conventional way feed high fructose corn syrup to their bees. And it sits out in the bee yard and it cooks in these huge vats. So, it's yeah. not a good thing. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Mm. So it's clearly not something you're doing with your honey. And it and I I I know we're kind of starting to get a little longer on the time, but I did have one more question mm-hmm. that I want to make sure we get to because I have seen a lot of things like royal jelly and bee pollen and propolis being advertised and talked about as these like wonder cures and all that. And I was wondering is it to be sustainable and caring and respectful to the bees, which of these products should we be using daily, uh, once in yeah. a while, never? Mm-hmm. What, what? For me, and I've been writing and teaching about this for a while, to me it comes down to what does it cost the bee for me to be able to use that healing substance. Yes. All of the things that come out of the hive have unquestionable health benefit in humans. And I would add, my opinions here are, are that, um, and um, there are many people that I respect and I know are loving and caring and love the bees that often recommend things like Royal jelly. And I would just say that this is my perspective on it. Uh, I look at what it costs the bee and honey, if it's, if it's harvested sustainably and the bee is healthy first, I believe we can sustainably harvest honey. I believe there are ways to sustainably harvest pollen, but we need to be a little more careful so that the bee gets uh, the whole variety of pollen that we get. And that's, I detail all this stuff, but that's a matter of opening up something called a pollen trap 
that make sure that they get some and we get some and they get some and we get some and it goes back and forth. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, propolis is, has a, is a real big fad right now. And propolis is, uh, I would, I would put it to you to understand propolis as an external immune system for the bee. Uh, the colony, we have to look at the bee as an individual, but we also have to look at the colony itself as an individual. You can't do just one or the other. But when we look at the colony as an individual, the bee keeps a lot of her immune system in the propolis that is sealing her environment. And the propolis is gathered from resins from trees and shrubs and intermixed in their body and put down. It is not just bee glue. It protects them from drafts, but it is also protecting them from fungus and viral attack. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And so yeah. to take it incidentally, I'm a beekeeper. I open up a hive. I get a little bit of that on my hive knife as I'm opening things. That's one thing. But to farm it, and here's where we get into trouble always in our culture, to farm it is where we get into trouble and it's not a sustainable product to be mass marketing. Royal jelly is, I just don't see a sustainable way at all to harvest it unless you're a beekeeper and you accidentally come upon a queen cell. And if it busts open, you should eat that. Don't waste it. But um, to farm royal jelly at all is to to put such horrendous stress on the bee, there's no way to do it other than to kill the baby queens in their nests. And uh, I do not believe in anthropomorphizing things, but it's hard for me not to say as a colony to constantly have their, their young pulled out and murdered and then empty cells returned and they don't have a queen throughout this process so it's stressful not to have a queen and they're desperately trying to make one and the nursery keeps getting robbed Um, whether you give them human emotions or not that is stressful on any organism Mm -hmm. Uh, it is it is a plant's job to procreate it is an animal's job to procreate and when you take that away repeatedly you are going to create stress and i just don't think on the average day to day that royal jelly is worth the wrinkle fighting. Um, there could be times where somebody is so very ill and the only thing that might be able to help them is royal jelly and maybe the cost is worth it there. But to farm it for our beauty industry or to farm it for energy to me is it, it really needs to stop. Mm-hmm. Right. What about beeswax? Beeswax is possible to do sustainably. Uh, it's a, that's a tricky line. Okay. You have to be careful not to be asking them to constantly fill boxes with beeswax in preference over them stocking up their hives with honey. Or if you're going to have them make beeswax instead of gathering honey, you're going to have to be prepared to feed them honey to keep them healthy. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like a little bit of honey every day is okay. Beeswax and maybe propolis, maybe bee pollen. Beeswax and bee pollen maybe, you know, once in a while, but not 
not like, you know, once a week or something like that, like a little bit less. Um, I have propolis. daily, and but it needs to be like a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon. We don't need to pig out on it. And I think that's the case. Use it if you need it. Use it in moderation. Use it in small measure. Yeah. Don't overuse it. And be aware that everything that comes out of the hive is a precious commodity that it is made at high cost. Yeah. And then royal jelly, out. Just plain out. For me, yeah. it's out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for being on our show and giving us a perspective that we really need, particularly as herbalists and people that are engaged in natural living so we can get updated on what's important in our world and we can we can live in a more healthy manner in this with all these little bees that are a part of our life. And people um, do recall that um, Don Combs, our guest here, is the author of Sweet Remedies, Healing Herbal Honeys. She also has a variety of other books out, and we'll have those in the show notes. But she did mention um, Healing Local, which um, is a, a book that you that you have as well. And I'll try to make sure that we have a, a link to those. And I know you're also, people can find your work in magazines like Hobby Farm, Mother Earth Living, and you have a column, Root, Root X in Heirloom Garden. Roots RX. Roots RX. Yeah. And thank you. In uh, Heirloom Gardens magazine. So you're, you're all over the place. So we. And are- on my own site, um, yes. you can find me at mockingbirdmeadows.com. You can also, it's same thing for Soda Farm Cafe, and that's P-H-A-R-M. Oh, right, of course, because you are clever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you again for being with us, Don, and I hope we'll be able to speak with you again. Thanks so much for letting me speak about my passion. Um, you guys are doing a lot of great stuff, and it's nice to nice that you gave me the space. Oh, it's been lovely. It's yeah, been it's absolutely been lovely. Pleasure. And as always, put, put an herb on it. The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA. They're not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.